If you have your Bibles with you, we return this morning uh, to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 15, and you can turn there with me. You can follow along on the screen before you if you'd like. We continue this morning in our series on the life of David. After this week, we will be here just one more week as we wrap it up and bring it to a close. I think next week will be our 15th and final week in our study of the life of David. Uh, Now before I read our text for this morning and uh, unpack what God might have for us this morning in David's life, I'd like to spend just a minute uh, bringing you up to speed on where we are in the life of David's story. We of course are not covering every scene and every detail in David's life. Not every detail and scene in David's life is even recorded for us in First and Second Samuel. There's a lot of David's life that we don't know about, that we will have to wait until the new heavens and the new earth to find out about. But we have tried in this series to gain a, a general sense of the trajectory of his life, a, a trajectory that has not been a straight line, has it? It's been up, it's been down, it's been up. It's been down. And if you were here last week, or if you were listening in last week, you'll remember that we left David repenting of the grievous sins that he had committed against Uriah and Bathsheba, and eventually or ultimately against Yahweh himself. The grievous sins of lust, adultery, despair, and murder. That was a story that was recorded for us just three chapters ago. We're in chapter 15 this week. That was chapter 12. But here's the thing. Between chapter 12 and chapter 15, where we are today, our best estimates is that some 20 years have passed. And this is, what, this is what happens with the Bible quite often is that we read these stories and what for us was just a few minutes of reading was for the actual people who lived it in real time years and years and years or even generations upon generations. So in chapter 12, David, we think, again, this is an estimate, but we think in his late 40s commits this heinous crime. He repents. He is shown not only mercy by God, but incredible grace. Because while Bathsheba's child dies, David is subsequently, we're going to hear a little bit about it this morning, subsequently blessed with more children. And then the time of chapter 13 comes, and these children are already grown, and now they're beginning to act out, to say the least. Chapter 13 contains the account of Amnon raping his sister, which prompts Absalom, his brother, to murder him and to subsequently flee from the city and flee from David's presence. Then chapter 14 brings Absalom back to Jerusalem, a return that isn't welcomed by David, his father, but is tolerated and a return that will ultimately come back to bite David himself. And that brings us to where we are today. So between last week 
and the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. And this week, David has ruled Israel for years and years and years. Our best estimates put him now at about 70 years of age. And things in his life are a mess. And they're about to get messier. So that's where we are today as we open up God's Word. Uh, Listen as I read, and if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Samuel chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16, and then I'm going to jump to verse 30 and read verse 30 as well. Listen as I read. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow when I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who are with him in Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us, and bring us down to ruin And strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Verse 30. But David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm not sure how sorry we felt for David last week as we unpacked Psalm 51. But as we close this scene with verse 30, 
what, what a tragic sequence of events for God's anointed, for the king of Israel. What is the Lord teaching us through this? Well, why has the Holy Spirit given this to us, preserved this for us? Well, I don't think it's to glory in the next generation of, of sin, that of David's prodigy. But I do think it is an invitation for us to think more about sin. In fact, I think that the message of this passage this morning flows actually quite well from where we were last week. Not that I want to camp out on the subject of sin. Believe me, I I don't. But last week we were reminded that we daily need God's mercy, but that God delights to show His people mercy. But you see, in a message like that, that the human heart has the possibility, there is the possibility of the human heart twisting that or, or at least misunderstanding that, much like they did in, in Rome in the first century. Let me read you Paul's words to the Roman church in Romans 6.1 where he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, if God loves to show mercy, then what does Paul say? By no means. May it never be. Grace is greater than all of our sin. Yes. But sin is not to be trifled with. And that's what this passage, I think, reminds us of. That's what David's grief reminds us of. And so today we're going to press in a little more for a few minutes on that nasty S word (laughs) in order that we might see ourselves, in order that we might see our God even clear and that we might grow in holiness as he calls us to. Three things, three points, three truths that I want us to hang our thoughts on this morning as we walk through this event. And the first one is this. God's promises will come to pass. God's promises will come to pass. I remember as a, as a child being so quick to call my parents out on broken promises or unfulfilled promises that they made. Dad, you said, you said that we would stop for ice cream. Now I, as a father, am am reaping (laughs) the benefits of uh, that very same thing. But I always, as a young boy, wanted my dad to forget about other promises that he made. Like the promises that he made in the car. Son, you're going to get spanked when you get home for hitting your sister. Man, I wish I had thought that through before I raised my hand against my sister. And boy, did I try to distract him in any way I could once we got home 
And his hand got off that steering wheel so that he wouldn't remember what he said. I think that perhaps we do the same thing with our Heavenly Father at times, don't we? We love the promises of of blessing and prosperity, but we just assume not think about God's promises concerning trouble. We have such a promise in the background of this story this morning. A promise I want to read to you from chapter 12, the last scene in the life of David that we looked at. David has sinned. The Lord has sent Nathan the prophet to make David aware of his sin and to call him to repentance. And Nathan says to David in chapter 12 of uh, 2 Samuel verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That, brothers and sisters, is what's going on this morning in this passage. The messy fulfillment of it began actually years earlier. It started with the death of the baby born in sin, conceived in sin. It continued with the actions and the horror of Amnon's sin against his sister. And now it's finding its crescendo here in the story of Absalom. You see, what I just read to you this morning in 2 Samuel 15, it is essentially, it's essentially the anatomy of a coup. Now kids, you probably don't know what that word is, uh, is a coup. You probably don't know how to spell it either. It's it's spelled C-O-U-P. But a coup is an illegal seizure of a government or power from a government. When someone tries to take by force a position that isn't theirs. And that's exactly what Absalom is doing here in 2 Samuel 15. He is maneuvering himself into position for a day to come. And actually, his actions look very familiar. They look much like the actions of some of the politics of our day. It begins with a description of him found, we didn't read it, but found back in 14, verse 25. Listen to this. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Absalom is devastatingly handsome. We might say in our modern vernacular, he just looks presidential. Then in verse 1, we learn that Absalom is strategically fueling this image by acquiring the the trappings of royalty, right? He's he's not the king. He's the son of the king, but he's going to look the part powerful and prestigious with chariots and men running before him. In verse 2, we are told that he knows how to work the crowd, right? He perches himself at the city gate and as travelers come in, he's interested in them. He wants to know where they're about, And more than that, he wants to know all their grievances, all their beefs with the current administration so that he can make empty promises like, well, if I were king, 
everything would be different. And then finally, in verse 5 of our passage today, he parades himself as a man of the people. He's not only grabbing babies and kissing them, he's kissing people. The end result of all of this, verse 6, it works to perfection. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He duped them. He duped all of Israel. This is not good for David. And the reason this is happening is because God's promises will come to pass. For four years, Absalom has sown these seeds until finally in verse 7, he's ready to pull the trigger and put the plan in motion. Under the guise of religion, he tells his father, the king, that he needs to go to Hebron where he's going to put the last pieces of his plan together and call on all of his networks of all of his network of supporters to raise up and pronounce him king this is conniving this is wicked and yet in the midst of it all god is mysteriously wonderfully keeping his promises and working out his plan God isn't responsible for Absalom's behavior, nor is God endorsing Absalom's behavior. But it is never out of his control. For those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus, it ought to remind us of another terrible promise that was kept. Spoken of by Christ's disciples in Acts 2. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God will keep his promises. Now that's a simple truth and I know that Many of you, most of you, all of you know it, believe it. But it has so many places where it can find root in our lives. Every heartache, every evil, every valley, none of it is meaningless. Mysterious? Yes. Meaningless? No. Because we know there's a God behind it. But let's think more about this promise specifically that we're given here in this passage or that we read that is working itself out in this passage. Why does Yahweh make this promise? And what does this promise mean? And that's our second truth for this morning. Not just that God will keep His promises but that our sin has consequences. Our sin has consequences. When when David poured out his heart to God in Psalm 51, where we were last week, when he leaned on the steadfast love of Yahweh, confessing his rebellion, 
and repenting of his ways, God forgave him. And the same is true for you. And the same is true for me. In Jesus, there is forgiveness for sin. Full and free. And yet, God did not. And at times, He doesn't still remove the consequences of sin. God's people built a golden calf. And many of them died as a result. Moses lashed out in unbelief in the wilderness. And God said, you will not enter the promised land. You see, David, David believed the lie, actually a bunch of lies, beginning with the one that his sin with Bathsheba would remain a secret. And that having her for a night would bring him fulfillment and joy and life. And so rather than following Yahweh's prescription for happiness, he pursued his own ends. And now it ends with this, verses 14 through 16. David is packing his bags, leaving the throne that is rightfully his, broken and grieving over what is now lost, a son, a kingdom, and a future. The consequences of his sin have not only impacted him, but they've impacted his family. They've impacted an entire nation. Our sin has consequences. And this is the anatomy of sin. It holds out before us this lie, this empty promise for this or that, making certain that the consequences of those actions are minimized or remain hidden altogether, right? I mean, just think about your life. Just think about your sin. We let bitterness fester in our hearts. And it begins to affect our patience and our compassion towards other people, even those that we're not bitter at. We indulge in a little secret porn. Not only forgetting about the devastation that it would cause if we're caught, but also not realizing and thinking through that your intimacy with your wife and your view of women is being totally screwed up with. We gossip about others. We make ourselves feel good by talking about them, not realizing that the trust of the friends that we are saying these things to is slowly eroding as they see what kind of friend we are. We lash out in anger at our kids, not only eroding their trust in us, but shaping their view of how to treat others and and maybe even what our Heavenly Father is like. The consequences of sin are not always clear. They're not always immediate. But make no mistake. Paul says to the churches of Galatia, do not be deceived. 
God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Brothers and sisters, this passage is a reminder for us that in our struggle against our flesh, in our struggle against the world, in our struggle against the devil, we must not minimize sin, but remember its consequences. We need this warning from David's life. I need this warning from David's life. Listen how Paul Tripp, PCA pastor, I've quoted him before, author, many of you know him. Listen to how he says this. He says, every day of your life, brothers and sisters, you are saying yes to things. Every day of your life, you are saying no to things. All of your yeses have a harvest. All of your noes have a harvest. That afternoon on the roof, David needed to say, no, I will not, but he didn't. And the full weight of giving way to that sin is now on his shoulders as he slogs his way up to the Mount of Olives, a broken man. Now hear this, the consequences for sin, they ought not be our only restraint against sin. I'm not saying that. But they are an important one, a necessary one. And let me also make this clear, that these consequences coming to pass in David's life and whatever we face in regards to our sin, this is not God punitively punishing His people. Yahweh is not enjoying putting David what he's going through. How do we view this? This is fatherly discipline. Sometimes we need to taste the bitterness of our sin in order to grow. Listen to the promise of Hebrews 12. The writer there says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. So David's brokenness is a reminder for us. It's a call for us to confess our sin, to flee from it. And as the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 12, then lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Yes, David is rejected. David is broken. David is reaping the consequences of his disobedience. But God hasn't finished it with him yet. This isn't the end of the story. And that's where we'll close this morning with the third truth. And it's this. The promise of the Son remains. The promise of the Son remains. God will keep His promises. Our sin does have consequences. But the promise of the Son Remains. The image that we're left with in reading this account is a powerful one. And it's the reason I read verse 30. It's David weeping on the Mount of Olives over the tragedy of his life 
and specifically the tragedy of his son Absalom. And I think in giving us that picture, the Holy Spirit subtly points us, doesn't he, to another scene. Set on that same hillside, generations upon generations to come. In Luke's gospel, we are told that Jesus, rejected by his own people, weeps for their sin. Sin that wasn't a consequence of his own sin. He had no sin. But sin that was a consequence of their rejection of him. And he'll return to this mount, Jesus will, to earnestly plead that the cup of wrath that he knows must be poured out, not be poured out on him. Of course, we know the end of the story. There's no other way. He who knew no sin must be made sin for us if we are to be the righteousness of God. Jesus knows that the ultimate consequence of sin, not his sin, but our sin, is what? The wages of sin is death. Death itself. And Jesus knows that that death, that horror, that wrath must fall on his shoulders if he is to save his people. And it's because of his willingness to drink that cup of punishment that our condemnation is avoided. So yes, temporary consequences might remain, but condemnation is gone. The promise of the Son remains. The Son of David, (laughs) the one who came from the line of David, would save his people from their sins. It's a promise that Yahweh made at the very beginning. Immediately after our first screw up in Genesis chapter 3, when he said that the seed would come to crush the head of the serpent. There's hope in Jesus. So while I want this morning God's word and the story of Absalom and David's life to be for us a sobering reminder of the seriousness of our sin, causing us to cry like David cries in in Psalm 139, Search me, O God. Know me. See if there is any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's where I want us to be led, but we don't stay there. We actually go as well to the glorious assurance that God keeps His promises. And He has kept His promise at the cost of His Son. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. Sounds odd, but we thank you for this tragic story in the life of your servant David. Our hearts break with his over what it must have felt like for his son to turn his back on his father. 
So we see him weeping on that hillside. We, we are humbled ourselves. And as his weeping on the Mount of Olives makes us think of our Savior's weeping on the Mount of Olives, that the cup of wrath not be poured out on him, we we think of the fact that Jesus endured the turning of your back, Father, because of the sin that he bore for us. Oh, Father, may the strength, may the sweetness of that sacrifice, in addition to the consequences, the devastating consequences of of sin, put us on a path of life and holiness in a way that we have not known before. Oh, Holy Spirit, show us. Show us who we are. And lead us, lead us in the way everlasting. For the glory of your name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.